This is Trying Days, The Journey, Conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. This is the second half of Chris's conversation with Jerry Doherty, a retired senior school principal, headmaster from Scotland, whose Trying Day book, written with Jim McGregor, is Prolonging the Agony, How the Anglo-American Establishment Deliberately Extended World War I by Three and a Half Years. And his next Trying Day book is a novel called Beyond Revanche, The Death of La Belle Epoque, a murder mystery set in Paris during the First World War. It's available for pre-order now and will be released on April 7th, 2022. Is, is what, what's your thoughts on, on this current uh, situation? I'm very alarmed by the parallels with the First World War. The Ukraine situation really began with a mobilization around its border. Oh, it was supposed to be some kind of, uh, you know, military activity which had no would have no consequence at all. But we know that was just, what was just a lie. The First World War began to, to move forward with the mobilization of Russia. Now, mobilization of an army of one and a half million men costs a fortune in itself. Now, once you've done that, it's very difficult not to step that one half page forward and have your war. It's very difficult to go back. And France mobilized too. And the instruction of, uh, to the French army was mobilize, but do not be any closer to the German border than 10 kilometers until we declare war. And Britain also, it, it wasn't of a formal mobilization, but we were ready. But what they agreed was that the British Navy would protect the French coast along the channel, and the French could take all of their navy and be in the Mediterranean to ensure a domination in that field. So there was an awful lot going on a whole sequence of exchanges between the Kaiser and the Tsar. They're called the Willy-Nicky telegrams. Worth looking up where the Kaiser is repeatedly saying, don't do this, please take your army back, please. Actually, you could argue wasted a couple of vital days by, by continually trying to make sure this didn't happen. And what happened after the war was, and I would like maybe to come back to that, generally speaking about hiding evidence, what happened to, to, to all of these was that they were withdrawn and then selected extracts were published. And of course, the selected extracts painted a picture which other people wanted you to believe, which held Germany in the vice of being the sole initiators. Which, which, which is so grossly unfair. It was a false flag. And I think that, that worries me very much because I get this horrible feeling and I, I had it for the last two weeks, this is going to happen again. Yeah. Because this is precisely what happened. And we never seem to learn from history. What has been, um, you know, the response of official historians here in Britain? And what is, you know, have... have have you been on British television, radio, talking about your book and, and your findings? Has it, has it been a, a, a public uh, 
uh, thing, or has it just been? Uh, no, it's been. Trying to keep you away from the microphones. What, yeah, what? yeah. Having said that, uh, we, we we blogged every week for four four years about what was actually happening at this point in time in the war a hundred years ago. Now, four hundred thousand views of that was really quite quite interesting. And James Corbett did a report based on this, and, and over well, there are half a billion people have seen have seen the you know these three particular uh, extracts. So, was I on British TV? No, no, not at all. That doesn't bother me at all. But the point that you're making, Chris, is did anybody try and follow this up at a national level? Answer: No. My my repeated challenge to. Um, academics to well, can we discuss in public how yeah. how it is that 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 this could be um, that this could have happened? Can we look at how we are teaching history today? Can we look at how the news uh, and the truth, which is oh, what is the truth? I, I haven't got long enough to go into that. I don't know if we get it right anyway. But the answer is consistently uh, not interested at the present moment. And that's that's just something that one, one has, has to live with. Well, it's, um, a, it's a sad commentary. It's a sad commentary uh, that, you know, I don't get any mainstream attention. You don't get any mainstream attention. And, and you know, this should be discussed. This should be uh, talked about. Yeah. This is why I do what I do. Uh, Bruce, you, you have any, any questions or? I do, but Jerry, do you have something top of mind right there to say? The disappearance of history, the covert act of stealing history, of, of removing the evidence and uh, pretending that it was never there in the first place. Mm. Because I, I think that's a fundamental act of disloyalty to your own people. There must be something wrong. There must be something to be hidden if that is the action that you resort to of the competing empires german and britain let's say that brought on you know the war that turned britain plotting against and planning this kind of a thing how prominent was germany's relationship and friendliness with the middle east and the sources over the oil over there in terms of that competition there were very very many factors many many right 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 yeah that that is but one person. What about the specific idea or question that America was so financially invested in the First World War that when Germany looked undefeatable or maybe even on the verge of winning, that America connived a way in in order to redeem its investments? Absolutely, one hundred percent certain. Of course, we got to the point where. If, uh, if Germany had won and there were no uh, reparations, then right. Britain would be absolutely with, without any kind of uh, capacity to pay America back, to pay the big right. banks back. I mean, it did right. come to a point where, yeah, yeah, they had to do that. And, and the subtitle of Prolonging the Agony, Deliberately Extending the War for Three and a Half Years, obviously implies... At mid-1914, it either could have ended or it didn't have to start. What exactly is that saying? I, I believe it would be, I put the time about 
1915 into 16, where it, it was stalemate. Right. And there was just this hemorrhaging of, of young life and no one was winning. And that would that would have been the perfect time for for balanced men and women to say, hey, enough. I mean, going back to were the American people duped into actually war? Well, you've got to look at how uh, Wilson won his second term in, in office. You know, he kept us out the war was yeah. the the great pin that, that that they pledged and that that proved to be to be just a horrendous lie in the end and the american people are in, in the heart my whole experience are incredible incredibly generous people you know the amount of um supplies that went out from from churches from communities and let's remember the, the, there was a big german community too in the States at that point in time, and still is, I think, around Chicago and Illinois and places like that, there was a great generosity. One of the ways, of course, that, that I do believe that America was, in the end, bounced into war was the sinking of the Lusitania, which was completely, completely misrepresented. One of the mysteries has always been or was up till a few years ago, uh, what was actually being carried on the Lusitania because there was total denial about any ammunition, any shells, anything that could have you know, caused the explosion after the first torpedo. And, and, th and this is something where history absolutely catches people out. Uh, there, there was a, a Liverpool group of um, historians, a bit like ourselves, you know, trying to unearth the truth trying to get hold of the real manifest because all they had was what was printed in the New York Times and in the London Times. And, you know, there was no sense of carrying anything other than bacon and sundries, which, which, uh, and people, of course, until a guy called Mitch Peak, he got permission to look into the Franklin D. Roosevelt presidential archives. What would the president, why would the president have that in the archives? Slap. Franklin D. Roosevelt was a secretary to the Navy. Assistant secretary. Uh, oh, it's, oh, good man, thank you. Yeah, assistant secretary. And that's what it was. And it had, it had a complete uh, list of, of, of shell casings and bullets and stuff from Bethlehem Steel quite explicitly sitting there. And that, again, is how the truth is manipulated at the time. And yet, almost 100 years later, wow, it comes out from a most unexpected place. You being a headmaster and, you know, looking into this and then, you know, publishing this books and, and, public, and doing your blog and stuff, uh, what did other headmasters, what did the other school people think about your... Have you changed anything about how the war is taught? No, absolutely not. These are not uh, platforms which, first of all, see themselves as having that kind of remit. Nor was anyone particularly interested, to be honest with you. Once you stamp something with the word conspiracy on it, 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 it it's like bad smell. <laughs> it, 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 it's a kind of close the door here 
and certainly don't open your mind. Yeah, I know. So, I've been. Yeah, I, I bet you. I bet you have indeed. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so now let, let's talk a little bit about Hoover, Herbert Hoover, because you know he uh, affected uh, you know uh, Anthony Sutton uh, quite a bit because he was working at the Hoover Institute when he. Uh, uh, wrote his uh, three volume set about Western technology and was told, you know, um, don't break your rice bowl, Tony. And yeah. he went ahead and broke his rice bowl and told the truth, you know. And so uh, enlighten the people a little bit about Hoover's role in World War One. The whole story actually came piecemeal as we put it together. It was like a very confused jigsaw puzzle because on the face of it he is the hero of the hour he is the hero of uh, Belgium he saved uh, the whole parts of Europe from starvation correct that's the, that's the uh, story yeah yeah um, how many how many statues to Herbert Hoover rather than Brussels oh yeah sorry you're shaking it none. You know, he, he's not revered at all. And there must be, and there is good cause for this, because the, the, the setup which he managed to talk the British government into, on behalf of those with the money to back him, and, and Hoover was intrinsically in, involved in England with the, the real manipulators of war. Hoover became the sole controller of all of the foodstuffs which were being permitted to travel across from America and wherever else in the world, South America too, where he could actually purchase grain, etc. Safe passage to neutral Rotterdam, where it would be taken off the boats, put on uh, smaller barges and taken to northern France and taken to Belgium and it would feed the population and uh, and keep everybody alive. This was during wartime. Oh, absolutely. This is 1914 into 15 into 16. Rotterdam is also the mouth of the Rhine. The Rhine is the singular biggest river that runs through Germany. And of course, and again, this is where the parliamentary records help. Of course, food was going down both channels. In other words, the war was being fed, if you like, through this so-called Committee for um, the Relief of Belgium, or, or the American Committee for the Relief of Belgium, some called it that, some called it the other one, it doesn't really matter, financed, this is clever, financed retrospectively by the governments who were borrowing the money from the states, and it had to be repaid, perfect, insured. Oh, yeah, wait a minute, that would be um, through Hoover's own companies or companies that Hoover approved of. And in fact, there were several debates in the House of Commons in London that Hoover was feeding Germany as well as feeding the, the northern parts of France and Belgium. The British Navy at the highest level, tried to stop this. And they were told, no, 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 no. No, we've got to feed these poor people. There was suspicion was everywhere that this was being 
totally and completely abused and keeping the war going. Was that ongoing after America came into the war too? It became slightly more uh, complicated, Bruce, but it didn't absolutely stop. And when America came into the war, um, the whole concept of a blockade became tighter, became more easy to effect. Uh, so the things did change. They did. But at the end of the war, it, it, it was Hoover who was feeding the starving, or this is, how, this is a story that went out, uh, the starving poor in, 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 in many countries, including Poland. Now, I have no doubt that a lot of people benefited, perhaps probably survived because of that. But that really wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to make a massive profit and it kept the war going. Right. And now comes now comes the coup d'etat because everything catches up with you, doesn't it? Because in time, somebody's going to find the evidence. Not if they don't have the evidence, or not if the evidence has been systematically removed hmm. from every port, from every possible place throughout Europe and taken by the boatload to the States, to Stanford. Right. Where the Hoover, I'm not sure if it's proper title, is it the Hoover War Library? It yeah. contains all the evidence from Europe at Stanford University. Yet it, 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 it's never been fully uh, documented, indexed. Um, we don't even know the totality of what's in there. We don't even know if things haven't been burned and removed because, hey, presto, that's how you make history disappear. But Mr. Hoover went on to become President Hoover. And that made, uh, that made things very much more difficult indeed. Uh, and another thing that made me, made me smile, you know, the, it, it's the obvious that, that you've never seen before. Hoover's offices in London, they, they were in a place called the London Wall. And, and as far as I recall, his address was one London Wall. And the accountants who were brought on board to do the final accounts for the Committee for the Relief of Belgium were three London Wall, number three, like they were his next door neighbours. Imagine the trouble that you would be in, Chris, if your books were actually transpired by the Inland Revenue to be looked through by accountants who actually happen to live next door, or perhaps in your garage. No, it's a. It's almost unbelievable. It is you know? almost unbelievable. Yes, you know, and uh, yeah, we had uh, a gentleman who did a a book about uh, Crowley and and uh, British intelligence, and and he's actually gone to the Hoover Institute and gone through some of those files and 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 talked about it. And it's just amazing that that is the repository of history over there. Um, you know, I, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on and, and telling us all this good stuff. Um, do you have any uh, last thoughts or, or words? Yeah. Or what, what do you yeah, want to tell I do, because I'm unashamedly going to give a little uh, push to my own book coming out through your good selves and within the month. To say that Brie, which was the great scandal in the north of France with the Committee de Forge with the, the armaments and that, 
gets a good place, so does Hoover. So to do quite a lot of the, the bits and pieces that we have talked about, the, the barges and so forth and so on, uh, because, and this is very deliberate, Chris, and I know I've said this to you, it frustrates me a little bit that people are so fulsome in their praise about the books, and yet it's, it's limited in just how much of it actually can get out. So I thought, well, I'm going to write a story. I'm going to write a historical novel. I'm going to write a historical whodunit conspiracy theory, true story about Paris and what was happening in France in the First World War. And I hope that, you know, some of your listeners might be encouraged to, to have a little look at this because it is a story totally laced in historic fact. Uh, and if it works, if more people read it, if more people begin to ask questions, that's the thing that can change even politicians. If people keep asking questions, and I think that's something we're doing. You know, you've done for very many years, and and you know, more power to you too. But there you are. A, a little plug for my my own book seems totally shameless. But uh, I can hardly ah, apologize. No, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great book, and yes, uh, people should read it. You know, I uh, beyond revenge. Always had great, right. great hope for 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 books coming out April seventh, right? Yes. Brilliant. Onwards and upwards. It's been a pleasure being with you, gentlemen. I have thoroughly enjoyed it.